0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Hearts and Minds is the title of a new Fabian Society publication in which 15 Labour leading lights, most but not all MPs, offer up a short essay on how Labour can win back working class voters. One of the most interesting contributors is my guest today, the MP for Barnsley Central and Mayor of the Sheffield City region, Dan Jarvis. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Alex. Your essay's tentpole, and I shan't apologise for stripping it of all nuance, because political narrative should be nuanced, but also capable of being summed up in a few plain words. So your central plea is that Labour must embrace love of country. Why is it, do you think, that so much of the left is so averse to patriotism?
1: Well, I think the left have had a long-standing dilemma about what to think about patriotism, and I understand that. But the reality is that most people in the country, and certainly many of those voters who recently have felt that they couldn't support the Labour Party are patriotic. They are proud of the country. They do think it's important that we take issues like national security very seriously. And I think for the Labour Party not to understand that and not look like it shares those values and that pride in the country, that's not to say that we don't think the country can be a better place. The way that I think about this is is I love our country, but I want it to, to be better. And I think that's where most of the people are in the country. And I think if it looks like we are out of of kilter
0: with them, Mm. we'll
1: never regain that faith and trust, which undoubtedly has been lost in recent
0: time. But is there a danger that by sort of shifting the conversation to areas where other parties are more comfortable, they're always going to be better at it and more authentic at it? And actually, you might end up doing more badly. I think there are
1: risks in everything that you do in politics. But I don't personally accept the notion that, that other political parties do this better than us or, or have any kind of natural right to be you know, the party of the armed forces or the party that is most naturally associated with patriotism and these kind of important issues. We operate in a competitive marketplace in politics. And I think voters are much more choosy, less tribal than they were a generation or so ago. And I think for the modern Labour Party, we need to demonstrate that we are in the mainstream when it comes to these kind of important issues. And I think the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, that for too long, and certainly over the past 10 years or so, people have got a sense that we weren't with them, that we didn't share their values, that we didn't understand the nature of the lives that they were leading. And Mm. that manifested itself in a catastrophic general election result back in 2019. So I think we need to think long and hard about these things. I think we do need to demonstrate that we share the values that are widely held by people across the country and that genuinely these are the things that we care about and these are the things that we believe, because I think the, the even greater risk is if it looks like we're pretending we don't really kind of understand it or get it and that we're squeamish about these kind of issues. So I think that's the challenge for us to kind of understand better than we have done previously what the majority of the public think and actually demonstrate that we're with them, that we share those values and that we're on their side.
0: Done. You're done. Labour is done in this town. That's the starting point of your essay. It's, It's someone shouting this to you from across the street. And they may have a point in the 2019 election, your vote share took a battering from 60 odd to 40%, with the Brexit party on 30% and the Tories on 21%. Do you look at results like Hartlepool, add those two numbers and think, bugger, I'm out?
1: I don't personally, but certainly it is the case that the 2019 general election was incredibly tough going. I remember on numerous occasions I prepared myself for a physical altercation. Such was the level of anger that we were encountering from people on the doorstep. So, yes, that was an incredibly tough period of time as we kind of battled our way through the winter election. I think that there are still some signs to be reasonably optimistic about the future. Look at the mayors that we've got around the country. So in the recent mayoral elections, we retained every single Labour mayor that stood for election. So it isn't all doom and gloom. We certainly have got massive challenges and we've got a huge mountain to climb. But I still think that we've got the potential to get back into government. We've just got to get on with the work to, to make that happen.
0: Like you say, I mean, one year before that general election, in the mayoral election for the Sheffield City region, which listeners does include Bar- Barnsley, I checked, you polled 30 odd points ahead of your nearest rival, the Conservative candidate. How are those two results reconciled? I mean, how do you, how do you read that? Is there a sense that Labour has become the sort of, the good party for local elections? but that the Conservatives are seen as more heavyweight for general elections? Is there a danger there? I think if you look at the recent
1: election results, they tended to favour the incumbent. So in England, the Conservative Party were the recipients of that. In Scotland, it was the SNP. In Wales, it was Labour. But I think that our metro mayors around the country, and we've got now representing millions of people i think that provides a really good opportunity for us as a political party to showcase the value of having labour in power so i'd like to see our metro mayors looked at as a shop window if you like to show what can be done and what labour in power can really deliver and the meaningful difference that can be made to people's lives so there's no doubt that we are still living through the most extraordinary period of time and the government undoubtedly got a significant political bounce on the back of a very successful vaccination rollout which of course by the way has been led by the nhs so i think this was a set of elections the likes of which we've not seen before mm. the real big challenge is, is what comes next and who can win the fight for the future of the country, the economic climate that we're operating at the moment is very challenging. So Covid has had a massive impact on our economy. Who do the public look at as being the people who've got the story to get us out of this tough spot? to brighter days in the future. And I think if we can demonstrate that it's us, that we've got the right analysis, you know, the right story to take our country forward, we can be more successful than we have been in recent times.
0: And I think that's what it comes down to, the story, the narrative, because for some years now, it's been unclear what it is the Labour Party are selling, in a sense. Is Keir Starmer, do you think, the right person to do this? Can he ever lay claim to an authentic narrative based around patriotism, which is what you suggest? Or is your essay a semi-pitch for possible future leadership?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, honestly, it it isn't. And I genuinely think that Keir can be and will be the person who, who leads this process. I think it's worth just saying that in a hundred or more years of the Labour Party, nobody, nobody has inherited a more difficult set of circumstances than Keir Starmer did. He took over a party that had been devastated at the recent general election. And then we found ourselves very quickly in this extraordinary set of circumstances with a global pandemic. So, you know, Keir has, has not had an easy time. So I think we need to give him the time and the space to develop that big, bold story as to what Labour can do and the difference that Labour can make to to people's lives. And there are some particular challenges in the north of England around the levelling up agenda and what it is that we're going to do for people here. So Mm. we've lived through this extraordinary period. I think there is a volatility to our politics that we perhaps haven't seen before. You know this expression, a week is a long time in politics. Well, the next general election will likely be at least a couple of years away. So I don't think that we should be too downhearted. I think we need to do the work to understand properly why it was that people didn't feel that they could support us previously and then develop on the back of that a really big, bold offer for people ahead of the next general election. And I think if we can get all of that right, then I think we're we're back in the mix.
0: You know, reading your essay and reading everyone else's essay, they were all very interesting. But considering the, the, the sort of tagline of the booklet is how to win back working class voters. No one really went into defining what's a working class voter in 2021, whether that constituency actually still exists. Is there a sense that where the Labour Party often goes wrong is in failing to recognize that actually many people in this country, who need to work in order to live, don't consider themselves working class anymore.
1: No, I think that's a really interesting distinction to make. The Labour Party historically has been a coalition of more traditional working class voters and those more middle class metropolitan voters uh, who, who've lived in the cities, and it's always been a sort of challenge to reconcile those. What well, at sometimes seem to be competing interests, I think one of the challenges that we face, and one of the reasons that we 've struggled in recent times is that in what might be considered more traditionally working class areas like the ones I represent in South Yorkshire, there is a view that the Labour Party, particularly nationally, has become disconnected with those communities, that the Labour Party nationally has been run by people of London for middle class metropolitan people in the bigger cities and I think there's been that kind of cultural shift and that sort of sense that the Labour Party nationally didn't understand the lives that people in communities like Barnsley have lived and the nature of the challenges that they face so there's always been this quite difficult conundrum that the Labour Party has wrestled with about how you can reconcile those potentially different interests and I think Mm. where we are at our best And where we give ourselves the strongest chance of being in power nationally is where we draw together the basis of a really big, bold, powerful offer that everybody feels that they can get behind and everybody feels that they will get something from.
0: You don't hold back in your essay from criticising the campaigning methods used and outright lies told by the Leave side before the referendum. And yet post-referendum, you were very much in the decision must be respected camp is that fair to say are those two positions reconcilable can you can you simultaneously think that basically leave cheated in order to get a mandate and still say that that mandate is sacrosanct
1: well ultimately before everything else i am a democrat and i'm incredibly respectful of the outcome of elections And although I I took a different view in the context of that referendum campaign, I thought it was incredibly important that we abided by the decision. And that's why, very unusually, I took the step, in addition to being a Member of Parliament, also to be a Mayor. And that was to make sure that here in South Yorkshire, we prepared ourselves and we got ready for whatever Brexit might bring, both the challenges and the opportunities. The whole debate seems as if it's been overtaken by events we had a debate we had an election we got a result and we're now dealing with the fallout of that result and the impact of a global pandemic and you know i don't think anyone really within the labour party can think that it is in our interest or the interest of the country to continue to replay those different debates that we did five years or so ago i think you know we have to look forward We have to think about the nature of our relationships with the rest of the world in the future, and we have to abide by the decision that was reached and work cooperatively to to try and make the best of it. And that's what I've tried to do both in Parliament and also in the work that I do as a Metro Mayor.
0: You have also recently uh, published a really cracking autobiography called Long Way Home. Not to take away from your skill as an author, but but man, your life is an easy one to turn into a book. To paraphrase one of my favourite films, everything but the hounds of hell snapping at your rear end, do you think that amount of peril and challenge and heartache means that you are effectively playing politics at an easier level than most people. I mean, there must be times when you hear people whinging about difficult decisions and you think to yourself, they're not difficult decisions. You know, I know difficult decisions and this isn't them. Well, although I didn't think it at the time,
1: I think that I've been lucky to have had the apprenticeship that I've had because I think it does give you a a judgment, uh, an experience, a sense of perspective. So when things are happening in politics that some people are getting very excited about, I think, certainly I hope, that I'm able to retain a sense of perspective because of the things that I've endured in the past. And I think increasingly people want their politicians to have had real life experiences I think I think I'm better at being an MP and a mayor because I've done something else I've had experience of a job that was demanding that was really difficult Uh, and I think that that means I'm better at doing the things that I have to do in politics I mean I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, everybody going the route that I went and it was uh, pretty tough and it had its moments and I talk about those in the book but I think I'm fortunate to have had those experiences. And I think that they've contributed greatly to you know, a desire to want to continue to serve. Because mm. it's a great privilege to be in the armed forces, but it's not something that you can do forever. At some point you have to leave.
0: And it's worked the other way around as well, hasn't it? In that having spent some time in politics now, you are a lot less let's say, absolute than you were before you went into politics about the difficulty of political decisions? Uh, You know, especially, I would think, for instance, going into uh, sort of boots on the ground type situations. I
1: think you have to be pragmatic in politics. I mean, we're not in power nationally, but I'm in power locally and getting things done is more difficult than perhaps you might think and you have to work with other people you have to keep people on side you have to reconcile different interests you have to work across party i think that's what the public expect they want their politicians to achieve the best outcome for them and their communities and in order to do that you often have to put Party political priorities and ideological purity to one side, and that's what I do in South Yorkshire to drive things forward to make a difference. The quicker you learn that in politics, the, the better. And you, perhaps some people come into it yeah. with all sorts of ideas about what they're going to get done. And we, you know, there's this saying in the armed forces that no plan survives contact with the enemy, and it's the <laughs> same in politics. You can come into it with all these amazing ideas about things that you want to get done. But then the reality of the kind of constraints around resource and the kind of the implications of of making things happen mean that you don't always get to do precisely what you want. So I think you have to be a bit flexible. You have to be pragmatic, but you have to still be ambitious. You know, I think our country, linking back to the conversation we had earlier, It's a wonderful place. You know, I think it's the best country in the world. But my great frustration is that we don't fulfill our potential. And I think as we come out of this pandemic, there is a really once in a generation opportunity to do things differently and better in the future. And I desperately hope that we won't miss out on that opportunity.
0: I understand you once, before going into politics as an officer, had to accompany Tony Blair on a helicopter ride and managed to get him lost. Misplacing the prime minister is quite a claim to fame, isn't it? it it wasn't a particularly happy
1: moment yes i sort of lost him in in, in a dark muddy wood somewhere and it was because it was my first day in a new job so we've all started new jobs and kind of experienced pitfalls but mine was getting lost with with the prime minister but to be fair to him he was he was pretty good about it and i eventually got him to the right place popped him on a on a helicopter uh, and and off off he went and and we went on, on on to the next thing but yes that was um back in 1999 in kosovo it seems a long time ago now though
0: At one point, you describe how when you were in places like Helmand, you worried about your family at home. And when you were back here and leave, you worried about your unit. And this spoke to me in a really profound way, because I think you were describing something that I call the migrant state. Uh, which you know people like me who are immigrants understand of more than one place being home but not quite of always missing someone always worrying about people somewhere else always unpacking or packing a suitcase of a you know a heart split in two pieces would you recommend military service to young people Looking for a vocation. It's a hard life.
1: It is a hard life. I mean, I would recommend it, provided they'd thought it through and thought through the consequences of the decision to serve. Because if you step forward, there's a reasonable chance that at some point you will end up in a very difficult, dangerous situation. And I think if you've decided that that's something that you're happy to live with, then I think it represents a wonderful opportunity to serve and to make a contribution to the country in an entirely positive way. But it isn't for most people. It isn't an ordinary job. It is more of a way of life. But I think it's incredibly important that we do reflect on the fact that lots of young people still want to serve and still want to step forward, take those risks to serve our country. And I think that's something that we should collectively be very proud of.
0: Grief. um, I, I heard it described once as a river of love crashing into a dam of absence. You lost your first wife, Caroline, to cancer. And you talk about how the fact you had two little kids was actually strangely helpful in that you got lost in the routine of looking after them. As the care of a parent with Alzheimer's, I get that completely. But do you ever think that this level of detachment becomes unhealthy, that the thick skin you had to develop through all those trials can become an impenetrable hide that makes you unfeeling to the world.
1: I talk a lot in the book about grief and the way that I tried to cope with it. I think everybody has to find their own way through the fog of grief. I don't think that there is a template way of doing it. And people just have to try and work their way through this incredibly difficult, painful experience. I think when I lost my wife to cancer and that was something that i'd never expected that i would have to kind of face that kind of situation i think that i threw myself into looking after my small children it was terribly difficult for them and i think that that provided something of a distraction grief it is the most terrible thing and i know it's it's a terrible cliche to say that time is a great healer but it is And Mm. as time passes, you are better able to function and you are better able to kind of perform those normal kind of things that sometimes amidst the worst of grief, you're just not able to do. But I just thought that I had a responsibility to my kids to take them through it and to try and come out the other side. And it was incredibly painful. And I always thought that if I was going to write this book, I was going to do it properly and I was going to be utterly honest. And I am, I'm utterly honest about how awful it was, but I've tried to do it in a positive and constructive way, which talks about my journey through that fog of grief and how somehow I was able to come out of it the other side and I was able Mm. to see brighter days. It's been incredibly heartwarming. The number of people who've read it and said it's been helpful and it's helped them deal with those kind of experiences I really hope that it will inform other people's journey out of the fog of grief, because Hmm. at any one time there are lots of people dealing with really difficult situations, and it sounds like you are as well, and my my, my sympathy goes to you, because I can only imagine how tough that is. But what I hope that I show in the book is that there, there is a way through it.
0: The Japanese have a thing called kintsugi, which is when pottery breaks, you don't throw it away, you mend it with gold. Um, you you make it into an even more beautiful thing than it used to be after it's broken. And it, it seems to me that reading about, you know, the fact that you, you were lucky enough to meet someone else that you fell in love with, she has been brilliant with your kids from uh, uh, Caroline, Rachel, that is your, your current wife, and, and that you now have a child together and your other kids love their sort of half-sibling uh, it seems to me that you've managed to take the, that broken pot and cobble it back together with gold and make it even more beautiful than it was before. I found the book deeply affecting. I mean, I, I highly recommend it. I don't want to say too much about it because I want people to go out there and read it. But I have to mention Joe Cox, who was not just a fellow Yorkshire MP, but a friend of yours. And, and you describe the heartbreak of her death, with such unbearable plainness. And then you jump forward to being locked inside the chamber during the Westminster Bridge attack and wondering what on earth is going on, because the whole point of making the life change you had made was that you would be doing a hard job in public service, but at least people would not be shooting at you. And here are people shooting at you. <laughs> Only you're unarmed and in civvies. Have you had cause to re-examine that choice of leaving what you thought was one thing for another thing and ending up in a situation where, again, you find yourself in peril and physical confrontation occasionally?
1: Well, in the book, I talked about the impact that losing friends and people I'd served very closely alongside had had on me. And I think that I made the assumption, mistaken as it proved to be, that when I left the army, that I'd left all of that behind. And uh, Jo Cox, um, and she's been on my mind a lot recently because I'm working very closely with her sister in Batley and Spen where there's a by-election taking yeah. place. She was a very special and wonderful person and I, I'd got to know her quite well. And just the shock of what happened was just, just terrible. It was just an awful thing that happened and and just hadn't seen it coming. When you're in Afghanistan, when you're facing that threat on a daily basis, horrible things happen, but they don't come as a surprise because they're happening the whole time. So I think to an extent, you're conditioned by your environment to expect the worst to happen. And then when it does, it's it's always horrendous, Hmm. but it's not a massive surprise. if,
0: If we circle back to the very beginning of our conversation before we finish, it seems to me this country is not on a good path. I mean, I am an optimistic person at my core, but it seems to me we are turning a dangerous corner. So circling back to my first question, how can you be a patriot and still criticise the wrongs you see? How can we turn people's love of country into a sort of tough love that says, no, we need to be better?
1: I think it is entirely consistent to love your country, but at the same time, want it to be better. And my great frustration with this country is it doesn't fulfil its potential. I think so much more that we could do to draw out of our people and, and get them to achieve greater things by giving them the opportunities that, that they deserve. I think you're right to say that this is a massive moment for our country, much in the same way that when we came through the the challenge of the Second World War, there was a real opportunity to do things differently, to build the kind of country that people wanted to see as they came out of that horrific experience at the end of the war. And I think similarly now, there's a really important moment to think about what's taken place and how we can seek to do things in a better way in the future. I hope we don't squander that moment and I hope that we don't miss this opportunity to build a better, brighter country for for the longer term. Because, you know, I think there is now just a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to to, to build on the pandemic and to invest in our people and to kind of unlock the potential of the country. And I think, you know, that becomes the big political challenge of the next generation set alongside the challenge of climate change as, as to how we do that. And I think, you know, for the Labour Party, there are real opportunities if we can get that right. But well, I think the public expect us to come together politically and as a country to, to, to make the most of these opportunities. And that's what I'll be working to achieve both as a mayor
0: and uh, as a member of parliament. Dan, it was an absolute pleasure to spend half an hour in your company. Thank you for your time and, and for your story. It was my
1: great pleasure. Thank you.
0: You can download Hearts and Minds from the Fabians website, which is at fabians.org.uk. And Dan's action-packed memoir, and ode to stiff upper lipness long way home is out on paperback today so order your copy online or even better support your local bookshop don't forget subscribe to like and rate our podcast and if you can spare a few quid we are on the funding platform patreon this is alex deep inside the bunker saying over and out The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.